Good morning. I've had this recurring thought that one of these days I'm going to trip over that plate and that would uh, be a memorable sermon for all the wrong reasons. So uh, there was when I uh, was preaching some Sunday nights, I would sometimes get out near the edge because uh, folks might, if they were you know, trying to stay awake, uh, they would always be wondering, is he going to step off the front of that? And uh, that was a masterful way to keep them engaged. Uh, so as I get older, I'm not quite as inclined to do things like that. So you'll have to be on your own for that one. I want you to know how wonderful it is for us to be at a place in the time, despite all the very serious things that are going on in our world, where God is giving us, the Lehman Avenue congregation, so many opportunities and you are doing so much to try to take advantage of those. I want to commend the several of you that are involved in calling our tornado victims and I appreciate the deacons who have really uh, set out a plan for us to reach out to those. The last number I had, and I know it's not complete, was 217. 217 who have been reached and uh, who we contacted through this effort. And you're reaching out to them and telling them how much you uh, uh, care about them and we want to pray for them. God can work through us to do uh, great things to reach the hearts and souls of people through that. So thank you for the time and effort that that reflects. I also think about as we start a new quarter next week that there are several of you who I have never heard teach that since I've been here have not uh, stood in the adult classroom and I believe in just about every place this next quarter will be someone that I haven't heard teach in adult class. And so the courage that that takes, um, we've had some great classes this quarter and, and appreciate uh, David and the wonderful job that he's been doing in the auditorium, but that will continue. And that is a statement of your growth in your faith. And I'm so grateful for the elders that are shepherding us and leading us in such an active way. They're not passive men. They're not men who confine their leadership to a back room somewhere, but they're in and among the sheep, and it benefits us. I hope that you'll take the time. It just takes five or ten seconds to encourage them and tell them how much you appreciate all the work that they're doing. What a wonderful day it is for us to be able to worship God and to come together as we anticipate great opportunities for us to serve in the days and the weeks to come. Five days, ladies, for you to go ahead and break that record the men set, which we'll break next year for the attendance that you'll break this weekend for what we did. And then that next weekend, it's a Friday through Sunday meeting with Melvin Ote, one of the finest preachers that I know. He is going to come and preach the word to us. Let's invite friends and neighbors as you've been doing. And let's continue to do that and expose them to the truth of the gospel. You know, somebody has said that the most important experience in a person's existence is the family that they grew up in. I think that that's true and it affects things day after day. Day in and day out. It impacts us. It influences who we become. And so I want you to take a moment and reflect on the home that you're leading or the home that you're in. Are you poised for spiritual success? You see, there are so many things that stand in the way of our spiritual success in this eternal objective. Maybe it is that we say that we're too busy. Too busy to take care of all the responsibilities that we have spiritually in our home. We have our children involved in extracurricular activities from before preschool and our lives are just as packed and filled and we can get too busy. 
Or perhaps we say that that's the church's job. To help to strengthen my children in my home. And that's partly right. We partner together, the home and the church, to work together to get our children and our families to heaven. Or we might say, I just don't know how to do it. But that's an eminently solvable problem. The goal that all of us should have in our homes is to be spiritually united. But just being spiritually united is not enough. There have been times when the people of God have been spiritually united, but it has not been for the good. In Jeremiah's day, as they were looking at the prospect of going into Babylon as the result of their sins, Jeremiah says, the children gather wood, the men kindle the fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes to the queen of heaven. And they pour out their drink offers to, uh, offerings to other gods in order to spite me. Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 18. But if families can be united to turn away from God, certainly the converse of that is true. Part of the nurture and the instruction of the Lord that should bind us together to do what pleases the Lord is to focus in our home on what we can do unitedly to serve the Lord and to save the lost. You might think that Deuteronomy chapter 4 is an odd place for us to talk about that. I hope you have your Bibles, if you're not already turned to Deuteronomy chapter 4, that you'll look back there. It's the farewell sermon of Moses. He's addressing the very people who are about to go in and take the land of promise. God had promised it to Abraham many generations, many centuries before. The generation before them had failed to do that. But now they had the opportunity to go in and to do what had not been done before and to be able to do what would transform their entire lives for the years to come. What would it take for them to be united in serving the Lord and saving the lost? Their focus was different. It was more national. It was more internal. But God has given us a mission. He wants us as a family to serve the Lord unitedly. And he wants us together to look for ways that we can save souls. I believe in Deuteronomy chapter 4, there are five tips that can help us in that. And I want to look through those very briefly this morning. Number one, if we are going to, uh, in our homes, serve the Lord and save the lost, we need to be true to the mission. Now, I want you to think about where Deuteronomy chapter 4 is in the book of Deuteronomy. As you see Moses addressing the people, a new generation... All that we see in Exodus through the book of Numbers is what had happened in the generation before. And how they had such great promise, but they fell short because of a lack of faith and a lack of obedience. But now it's a new day and there's new hope. And so Moses stands before the people and in Deuteronomy chapter 1 through Deuteronomy chapter 3, he looks back to the past at what had taken place that had caused them to wander for 40 years. But he does so in order to help them to focus more on the present and more importantly to look to their future. And what he encourages them to do is to see the mission before them and to seize it and to understand it and to be true to it. And the mission for them was very simple. He says, I want you to go in and to possess the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given unto you. They had an opportunity to go in and take the land that God wanted them to have. And I want you to think about the fact that God has given us a mission as well. God wants us to be those who receive the inheritance. But it's better than a promised land that's physical. 
What we have is a better country. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 16. And Peter wants us in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4 to understand that we have an inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled and that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God, by faith in the salvation, ready to be revealed in the last day. What we have is a chance to go into a better place, an inheritance that fades not away. And God wants that for us, and He wants that for our children. But if we're going to do that, we've got to be true to the mission that God has given to us. And in Matthew 28, and verse 18 through 20, the mission that He gives to us, it's not just for us to get our families there, but it's for us to get others to join us in that better inheritance. We've got to be true to the mission. But I know that there are so many things that can keep us from fulfilling that mission For us to stray from it or to neglect that mission. And I believe the things that I'm about to mention are things that all of us struggle with. Everything that I'm about to share with you, I don't think if we're talking about elders or preachers or anybody else, no matter how long you've been a Christian or how new you are in your walk of faith, these are things we struggle with that keep us from serving the Lord first and from our family seeking to save the lost. Here's, Here's what they are. Number one, we say, I can't do it. No less than Moses says that. Here's the man who's leading the entire mission. And we see in Exodus chapter 3 and Exodus chapter 4 that God says, you're the man. I want you to go and to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And he, one after the other, gives excuse after excuse for why he's not the man to do that. But later on, you'll find that it's time to go out and spy the land so that they can go in and take possession of it. And so he sends the 12, the cream of the crop, to go in and to see what the land is like and if they could come and take it. And then they come back and we remember what happens there. What's the difference between Moses and those ten faithless spies? Ultimately, Moses obeyed and they did not. Ultimately, Moses said, I will. But they said, we can't. Numbers chapter 13, verse 31 and 32. When you look at this inheritance that God laid out before them, there are three different perspectives that you see. When they looked at the prospect that generation before, they said, our children are plunder, they're prey. In Numbers 14 and verse 3, he says, we should go back to Egypt. Why have you brought us out into this land to cause us to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones, they'll be plunder. Let us return to Egypt. They saw their children as helpless and hopeless, and yet Moses would say that they were pure. In Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 39, he says, These children, these little ones that you were so afraid about, they're going to be the ones that go in and possess. Your sons, your your young men, they don't know right from wrong. They're an empty slate. They're a clean canvas. And God wants to paint on that faith, vision, hope, and future. And God saw them as possessors. An incredible thing to me is, is if you'll walk through the book of Deuteronomy 42 times, Moses says, or God says, you must possess or you will possess. In Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 31, God says, I carried you like a father carried his children on my shoulders and nobody's going to stand in God's way. So we get the choice. We ask ourselves, do I look at my family life? Do I see them as prey? Do I see them as plunder? If I do, I'm going to have an I can't do spirit. Maybe we see them as plunder or prey if we're overprotective. Or if we're more concerned about their physical or their emotional or their social safety than we are their spiritual safety. But God wants them to be seen by us as pure, a slate, a clean canvas on which He can paint. 
And He wants us all to be possessors. You see, if there's ever a religion of positive thinking, it's Christianity. Like Jesus, we say, I can do nothing of my own initiative, John chapter 5 and verse 30. But we, like Paul can say with Christ, I can do all things. Philippians 4 and verse 13. When it comes to my spiritual life and my family, serving the Lord and saving the lost, if I can win a friend to myself, I can win a follower for Christ. But another excuse that we sometimes give is, I don't know how to do it. I'm firmly convinced And we say a lot about evangelism as well we should. We talk about we're going to reach Warren County for Christ. That everything that we do is going to center around evangelism. And it's right for us to emphasize that. Because I do believe it's true that what we emphasize from the pulpit publicly through leadership is what we as a congregation are going to focus on. But I think it's an an unfair conclusion to say that we're not doing more evangelism because we don't want to. I don't think that's true at all. I think more often than not, we don't know how to do it. But I want to encourage you in something. You have learned difficult things throughout your life. Now, there are some of you, perhaps in your profession, that you had to learn calculus and physics and accounting to do the job that you do. I can't imagine how you have the brain capacity to do that, but somehow you learned how to do that. Or perhaps that you learned the technical proficiency or the skill that was required to play a certain sport or to do a certain job. You you acquired the skills with your hands to do them. You memorized charts and tables. You can, through effort, learn how to be one who is a viable reacher of souls for Christ. But how do you do that? Well, let me think about a couple of things with you. Mark your Bible. Kathy and I had Wendell Winkler in school at Faulkner University, and that was the first time I'd ever seen that particular method where an idea was for us to to put a little column out in the front of our Bible that would be on some subject like inspiration or authority or New Testament worship or the plan of salvation that could help us to tie together what Scripture says so that we don't have to memorize everything the Bible says about those things, but to be able to reach out to somebody in a moment like that. Or maybe right in the corner of a particular verse... That you mark somewhere else that says this passage teaches some particular doctrinal truth. Or this addresses some uh, false teaching that is prevalent in the religious world. Marking our Bible makes it a tool in our hand. Now certainly we understand that this is that the words are inspired, but this book is a tool. And the better we can make it useful in our hands, the more um, effective we can be in His service. But it's more basic than that. You know what can help us to serve the Lord and save the lost better in our families? To, to learn the how is to read our Bibles daily. You know, we're indebted to Hiram. I had not seen, especially on this level, this connectivity through just a little app that's been on, you could have had on your phone before they ever got here. But he has done a great job of trying to connect so many of us. Maybe several of you are reading Scripture with him. If not, Hiram, it's about to be a lot more time that you're going to spend in reading it's a great challenge because it gives us an accountability. It allows us to read in a programmatic way what God's Word says, to put it in our hearts, to put it in our lives, and to reflect on it. And you know what happens when we put God's Word in our hearts and in our minds? It begins to show itself in our lives. We're not just hearers of the Word and we're doers of it. What an impact and a difference it will make. Be friendly. I don't mean be fake. But for a Christian, it should be natural to be warm and friendly. 
Look at the people in your life and see how you might not make a connection with them in order to be able to reach them with the gospel. Be friendly with them. But then learn people. If we're going to reach people, we've got to know people. And there are some things, it seems to me, that are true about most people. Most people realize that there's something missing in their lives. They may not know what it is, but they know that something's missing. You know what else I've learned? And I say this not only from living in the heart of the Bible Belt, but I spent 13 years before this in Denver, Colorado, which, by the way, if you don't know, is not in the Bible Belt. And there, it was the same as it is here. Most people believe in God. They may not believe in the God of the Bible, but they believe in a higher power. And we have an opportunity to try to do just like Paul did on Mars Hill and to introduce to them the God of the Bible. But most people are teachable. Most people will listen to you even if they don't obey the truth that you share with them. And most people are reachable. Despite their problems, despite their prejudices, and despite their pasts. And most people will give you a fair hearing. In the very end, they may not follow what you say, but most people will give you an opportunity to hear. Another thing we've got to do if we're going to learn how to do it is practice. You know, I have gotten some great uh, presents lately of tools. And if you don't know this, I'm not the most handy with my hands. I'm kind of up and down in that. I'm kind of maybe middle of the road at best. But you know, all the best tools in the garage are useless if they just stay there and I never make use of them. Pretty helpless, no matter how great and effective the tool is. And Bible class is a wonderful way for us to grow our knowledge of God. And learning personal work methods are great. But in the end of the day, we've got to practice We've got to get ourselves out there if we're going to serve the Lord and to save the lost as a family. But maybe we say people aren't interested. Well, that's always been the case. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, the Messiah was on earth. And in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, he tells us most people are not going to follow the way, but there are going to be those who will. And despite the fact that most people are not interested, you know what is remarkable to me? John the Baptist still reached out to Herod. And Paul still reached out to Felix and Agrippa. I think that there are always people in every age who are interested. Interesting fact for you. There were only uh, 240 mosques in the United States in 1985. 37 years later, there are nearly 3,000. Did you realize that from 2011 to 2020, 2.7 million people were baptized by those in the Jehovah's Witness faith? Did you know that in 1947 that there were 1 million Mormons on the earth? In 1963, there were 2 million. Did you know that today there are 16 million, including 6 million in the United States? And this is just statistics to prove that there are people who are looking for God. And if there are that many people looking for God, surely there are those that we can reach and show New Testament Christianity. I believe that there are people who are interested. I get this one. I don't have time. Man, time is so scarce and it's so precious and we're being pulled in so many different directions. Here's an exercise. You can do it mentally. I want you to, if you don't do it by lips or out loud, I want you to think with me how long this takes. Here's, here's the phrase. Would you like to study the Bible with me? Somebody got a stopwatch? Would you like to study the Bible with me? It takes that long. And if they say yes, and some of them will, 
How much time will that take out of our week? If we study with them once a week, an hour or two hours? You see, the time is there. We can take the time. I'm afraid I will hurt or offend somebody with the Bible. And that's a legitimate concern. We should never be the one doing the cutting. Let's let the sword of the Spirit do the cutting. We have an obligation to be gentle and kind in our reaching out with the gospel, 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. But if we are kind, if we are gentle, and they are offended, let us remember that we're in good company. Because Jesus did not make everybody happy that he shared the gospel with. The rich young ruler, the Pharisees, are just a couple of examples of that. I don't have the right personality. Our Lord took 12 divergent men. There were fishermen, there was a tax collector, there was a political zealot, and he grabbed them all together. He mentored them for three and a half years, and then as he's about to ascend, he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Were they all extroverts that didn't know a stranger? You know, God uses your personality, whatever it is, to open doors to you that may not be open to others. As we think about it, God wants us, whoever we are, to use those abilities. Excuses are a part of who we are. We all make excuses in some part of our life for something that we haven't accomplished that we need to. But we do what we want to do. A few years ago, I remember what took place in Denver. It it was remarkable. Let me tell you this. What I'm about to tell you was not even in the top ten But it was a playoff game between the Denver Broncos and the Baltimore Ravens. I'm so thankful we don't have weather like this here. But they had a, for that playoff game, they ordered up some weather. And by the way, the game went uh, 76 minutes and 42 seconds of game time. 76,732 fans stayed in their seats for five hours of real time in temperatures for the entire five hours that were well below zero in wind chill factor. Why? Because, believe it or not, they love the Denver Broncos. In John chapter 4 and verse 20, Peter and John says, We cannot help but speak the things that we have seen and we have heard. When we look at the the task that Moses is giving to the the children of Israel here in Deuteronomy chapter 4, he says, here's the mission. You've got to go in and you've got to take possession of the land. It's not going to be easy, but you need to be true to the mission so that you can receive the objective that I've laid out for you. And God has given us a mission. It's a mission for our family and it's a mission for those around us. And he wants us to be true to the mission. We've got to be aware of the excuses and get them out of the way. I can see the clock, so I'm going to go very briefly through the the next couple. Number two, if we're going to serve the Lord and save the lost, we have got to be honest with the Scriptures. What happens in the next verse is, in order to achieve that mission, what he tells them is, on one level, very simple, but on another, very profound. He says, you're not to add to the Word or to take away from the Word which I command you. In other words, I want you to deal with integrity with the Scriptures. It's very easy for us to want to put our own spin or our own slant on that or to have our own opinions and our own feelings and live according to that. But it's very important that if we're going to be true to the mission and we're going to serve the Lord and we're going to save the lost, then we've got to be honest in the way that we handle the Scriptures. And this is something that the New Testament is full of in principle. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 and following, the Apostle Paul says, I marvel that you're so soon removed from him who called you from the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another gospel, but there are some that trouble you and would distort the gospel of Christ. 
at the very end of the Bible. What's true of Revelation is true of the other uh, 65 books. John, in the very last few words of the Bible, says, don't add to what has been written in this book or the plagues of this book will be added to you. Don't take away from this book so that your name is not taken from the book of life and the, the blessings that are recorded in this book. In Proverbs 30 and verse 5, the writer of wisdom says, do not add to his word lest he reprove you and you be found a liar. Let's think about how that has application. We need, as parents, to be in the Word of God. We need to know the Bible because those moments, if God blesses us with them, are going to come when our children are going to ask us about what we believe about whatever it is. We never want to lead out or to fill our answer with, well, here's what I think. Or here's what the Church of Christ says. We want to be able to know God's Word to such a degree, to handle it so accurately that we can take them right to where God's Word says, this is what God wants us to do. And what that will do for us is it will not ever cause us to press as doctrine what is really a matter of judgment. But hopefully it will also encourage us to never live in a way consistently with what we tell them the truth is. Verse 6 says, be careful to observe that. Man, that will go so far in us being effective in serving the Lord and saving the lost if we'll be honest with the Scriptures. And then number three, be aware of your identity. That's the bulk of the entire paragraph. What I want you to see in verse 3 through 8 is that Moses is not speaking to all the generations of Abraham's descendants. He's speaking to that one. It was this particular generation that had seen the mighty works of God, had seen what God did to those who participated with Baal Peor. He says that the ones that he was speaking to are those who were true to God and were alive that day. That this was the generation that people could look at and say, this is a great and understanding nation, a wise nation, a great people. You know, there are 282 UR statements in the New Testament. And some of them are devoted to reminding us of who we are. The world wants to, us to think that we're weird and we're strange in our faith. It can cause us to lose sight of who we are. Well, as we look through the scriptures, it says you are salt, you are light, you are much more valuable, you are branches, you are a temple, you are heirs. You are the people of God. You are the sons of God. You are a holy nation. You are a royal priesthood. You are a people for God's own choosing. Over and again, he says, look, you should never have an identity crisis. If you are a child of God, look at who you are. And you know what? You are more than conquerors through him who loved you, Christ. Romans chapter 8 and verse 37. If we'll understand who we are and who God has called us to be, then we'll serve the Lord with vigor. And we will reach out and save those who are lost. But then also be careful with your own faith. As it is in the Shema, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the idea is, before you ever think about sharing it with your children, you need to have it in your soul and in your heart. Be very careful about what you say to yourself and what you say is true to yourself. Be careful in how you walk and in what you say in front of your children. You lead in two ways. You lead in your words, and you lead in your walk. And that sets you up for that last principle, be intentional with your children. Once you have an idea in your own faith of what it is that God needs you to be in front of them, then that will help you as you form the decisions of your life. So to do that, be what you project that you are at church, 
and when you are around other Christians. Boy, it's been the death knell of many faith for our children to see us being something else and acting another way, away from church and away from the people of God and when we're in the world. We need to be genuine. And we also need to make sure that we let the faith be the, the driving force in the decisions that we make in our family. Our children and our families need to see that it's faith that drives the decisions that we make about our job and about our recreation and about our friends and about all that makes up who we are. And then prioritize the Lord's work above everything else. We can test that. What gets the most attention? Our children's homework and schoolwork or their attention to Bible class and the assignments that they have? Which one gets the greater priority? If something's going to get sacrificed, is it the secular or the spiritual? You see, these are ways for us to be able to measure that. And we need to make it clear that Christ is supreme in everything that we do. He is our King. He is our Lord. He is our everything in our speech and our spending and in our activities. An incredible thing happens on this occasion in Deuteronomy chapter 4. It's not stated here, but we know it's the case because of what happens next. Do you know who's in the audience as he speaks that day, Moses? There's a man by the name of Caleb. And Caleb has a daughter in that audience, and her name is Aksa. And as we look at Caleb and Aksa, we remember that this man, Caleb, is the one that says, Give me this mountain. And he has a daughter. And you know what she says? Give me this blessing. She's given an inheritance. And you know what she does? Audaciously, just like Caleb goes to Joshua and says, Give me this mountain, even though I have this other inheritance. She comes to her dad and she says, I know you've given me this, but give me the upper and the lower spring. Caleb gives her more than an inheritance. And he gives her more than a husband. Because as the result of the, the giving out of the inheritance, he says, I'm going to give to my wife the man that's able to go and take Debir. And there's a man by the name of Othniel who goes and he takes that and he receives her as a wife. Do you know who Othniel is? He's the first judge in the period of the judges. Judges 3, 9 through 11, talks about how he subdues the Mesopotamians and he brings peace to Israel in a mostly turbulent time. I wonder how much of an impression did Aksa have on Othniel. Guys, we know it's true. Anything that generally happens good in our lives, we're influenced very much by our wives. I'm sure she had an impression on him, but I know this, Caleb had an impression on her. Our faith lives in our children. That ought to make us thrilled, unless faith is not central in our lives, and it ought to motivate us to make the adjustments that we should so that we can have our own axes. But you see, it's got to happen from generation to generation because ultimately, Caleb's descendants were among those of whom it was said that they did every, every man did what was right in his own eyes. But our faith can live on in our children. But it's got to live first in us. King Harold of the Second of England was able to do something that was almost unheard of in the Middle Ages. Foot soldiers, infantrymen, had very little impact on the outcome of battles in the Middle Ages. But Harold II was an exception to this. His 7,000 soldiers he sent on a brutal march from London to York, 216 miles, and they made that distance in seven days. If you do the math, that's almost 31 miles a day. A march that would be impressive in any age. 20 miles a day was considered extraordinary. 30 miles a day, practically 
impossible to believe, but they did it. They went so fast that they went faster than the sound of the news of their approaching. And they turned the battle of Stanford Bride in 1066. What we don't have for us is some kind of profile in what kind of leader Harold II was. What kind of motivational leader was he? We don't know, but we can see the outcome. He moved them. He encouraged them so that they won the battle. Well, we're in a battle, Ephesians chapter 6, and we need to win. We have a supreme commander that leads us, but God has placed in the home, we as parents, as leaders, to shepherd our children to win the battle. And sometimes it's difficult for that march we're, we're, we have conditions against us, but we have a God who is for us, Romans 8 and verse 31. I want to encourage you in all that stands ahead of us. God is opening doors all around us that we focus day in and day out on that most important existence of all human experience, day in and day out. Have the kind of families that can turn our part of the world upside down. This morning that may mean then that a mom or dad in this particular audience has not yet made the decision to become a child of God. You've not acted on your faith to put Him first in your life. You're not submitting to that overall leader of this world, the one who died for our sins. Perhaps in faith you're ready to give your life to Him. That means repenting of sins and being baptized to have your sins washed away. Maybe you're ready to do that. What a great gift to your family. What a great gift to the church. What a great gift to this world if you would do that. If you're a child of God who needs to make corrections in your life, if you need for us to pray with you and for you in your work in your families or for any other reason, we can be of help to you and you need to publicly respond, why not take this opportunity right now as we stand and sing?